Just when you think relations couldn't get any worse between Canada and China, they do. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Last week, China ramped up the pressure on Canada by sentencing two Canadians to the death penalty. The bizarre part was they'd already been convicted and sentenced to incarceration. And then it all changed. This relationship has been skidding into the ditch for a couple of years since Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested in B.C. to be extradited to the U.S. Shortly after that, the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spavor, were arrested on the accusation of espionage, although nothing's been proven. Over 500 days in captivity and counting. What's it going to take to thaw relations between the two countries, or... Does Canada pivot away from dealing with China anymore? Joining us to discuss the latest standoff between Canada and China, I'm pleased to be joined by Elliot Tepper, Distinguished Fellow of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Elliot, you know, we've talked China a few times, but have relations ever been this worse? Well, not since recognition took place and we severed uh, relations with Taiwan under the... um, insistence of Beijing, you can't recognize two Chinas, you can only have one China. So we've, we dropped Taiwan as our official China partner and switched to Beijing. And since then, uh, things had really been looking up and up in the sense that as China emerged more on the world stage as an economic power and as a geopolitical force, Canada invested very heavily, as did everyone else really around the world, into dealing with the new China. And in particular, after the end of the great proletarian cultural revolution and Chairman Mao's belligerent approach and the coming to power of Deng Xiaoping, where he said it doesn't really matter what color the cat is, black or white, what matters if it catches the mice, and that is, let's have a pragmatic approach. And China became really a capitalist center presided over by a very rigid communist party, a a strange anomaly. But since then, China has clearly been the place until we made some discoveries that Xi Jinping is not like his predecessors. uh, The current leader clearly does not wish to be a state like others. You know, China was ushered into the WTO to say, you're a regular country, you'll abide by the rules of international law. And uh, we think you'll get more and more to be like us. And as Xi Jinping has consolidated his power, it's very clear he's not getting more and more like us. He's getting less and less. And the two Michaels, among others, are paying that cost. You know, if the U.S. wasn't such a, well, a basket case right now, do you think our largest trading partner would be taking a little bit more notice of this? Well, the U.S. is... um, it's certainly a factor in what's about to happen with Canada and others around the world in that the U.S. is deciding under the Trump administration to make China the focus in foreign policy of the upcoming election. And it's going to be a contest between the Republicans or Trump saying, I, I, I'm a harder liner on China than you are, Biden. You're soft. And Biden saying, no, no, I'm a harder liner than you. You're the soft one. So this immense trading relationship and geopolitical um, uh, conflict in a way, incipient conflict, is going to be playing out in front of us. We, of course, are all caught up in this because, among other things, just as one one example, we are a member of the Five Eyes, the intelligence community, uh, which involves uh, you know New Zealand and the UK and the US and us and Australia. And we've been told by the US that we can't participate in this crucial intelligence sharing cooperation 
if we don't ban Huawei from all parts of Canada, uh, Canadian infrastructure. So that's just one small indicator, but it tells you that our relationship with China is increasingly going to be intermixed with the American changing position on China itself, and we're into a whole new world now. How does China go from convicting two Canadians and sentencing them, and then all of a sudden bringing them back to court and leveling the death penalty? Well, they did so even more so with uh, earlier with a fellow mm. named Robert Schellenberg, yeah. also on uh, drug charges. Uh, he was arrested and put in jail on lesser charges. Then after the two Michaels got arrested, uh, they brought that case forward and upped the uh, nature of the charge. To be fair, China has long told uh, the world, under all of its regimes, we are not going to put up with drug smuggling. We are very hard on drugs. And China believes in the death penalty. They kill, they uh, execute more than a thousand people a year for one reason or another. And drugs uh, are certainly a key component of that. And apparently some people who are Canadian are caught up. So what the China is saying is, look, we, we do this all the time. But you've got to ask, Ed, is the timing on this one very, very uh, suspicious and significant? Australia had exactly the same experience. That is, uh, one of their citizens was arrested on drug charges, uh, but it was brought forward for the death penalty after Australia uh, said to the world, we are going to join and call for an international investigation of China's role in the origination in Wuhan of the COVID virus, uh, the origins of that and their relationship with the WTO. And as soon as they did that, an Australian was sentenced to death. Elliot Tepper joining us in the Unpublished Cafe, distinguished fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University as we discuss the very frigid relations between Canada and China right now. And and it was just earlier this week in, in Hong Kong that uh, the publisher of Apple News, Jimmy Lai, was uh, was arrested, although he was released. What, was that just sending a message? It was certainly sending a message. Uh, he is... Uh, He's an entrepreneur and a capitalist, uh, and uh, leading. He started in apparel, but he's he's a very wealthy Hong Kong businessman, a very typical model uh, of of his type in Hong Kong, an entrepreneurial uh, haven uh, where you make good by working hard. and And uh, he also had a newspaper chain that he was involved in, including the largest, most popular tabloid, Apple. And he has long been a critic of Beijing. And then he joined Twitter, and he did some said some sharp things on Twitter. Then came this national security law, and he said, you know, they they he said in an op-ed in the New York Times, first they were uh, worried about free speech, now they're worried about free people, <laughs> and they're going to come for me, and they have. Uh, after this national security law was imposed, the world uh, reacted, including Canada, saying we no longer see China as sticking to their agreement, which is an international agreement about the one one China, two systems policy, the handing back of the Hong Kong colony from the UK uh, to China in 1997. Uh, but it, you know, it guaranteed there would be a continuation of the British type freedoms in Hong Kong. And they flourished, flourished in Hong Kong. And people like Jimmy Lai flourished in Hong Kong. Now he's... Um, uh, among the most prominent people affected by this national security loss, which basically everyone is saying means that Hong Kong is no longer uh, w- under one 
system of one country, two systems. It's really one country, one system. And here's an example of it. And he is saying, struggle on. We cannot accept that. We're not going to accede to that without a struggle. You know, China doesn't like criticism. How, how can Article 38 ever apply 38. outside of China? Well, it, it does apply. It's whether they can implement it or not. Yeah. Uh, Canada and uh, the U.S. and others have now abrogated extradition treaties that they've had with uh, China, uh, saying that in the past, when we thought you were going to become more like us, we were quite willing to treat you like you know a normal country, so that there were mutual extradition treaties. And Canada has now canceled its extradition treaty with China, saying, if you use this national security law to uh, to arrest people that are you know, have a right in Canada, and there's at least 300,000 people there who do right to be in Canada, we are not going to recognize that. So what's happened now is that this arrest took place. The, they not only arrested him and his two sons and his senior executives, but Ed, they sent 200 armed, <laughs> armed uh, officers, security police, into the offices and ransacked it, and they led him out in handcuffs. It was a clear show of force, and he's saying, having been uh, released after 36 hours, but only on bail, he's still he's saying, you know, they could disappear us. They could take us into China, as has happened to booksellers and others in Hong Kong over the past while, before that long got passed. If you disappear into the Chinese legal system, uh, you don't have much of a chance. Why won't Canada use the Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act? I'm not sure we won't. Uh, the U.S. has has uh, now actually used it against Carrie Lam, the the most prominent. Uh, she's the, elect, the the leader in Hong Kong of the legislature, and she's uh, one of a number of people. Hong Kong then, then immediately said, "Okay, now we're going to use our version of that so that Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are under our international uh, 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 regime." So. You know, they, they, they're using, they're saying, if you use it against us, we're going to use it against you. We have our own version of the Magnitsky Act. I think the real answer to your question goes back to where we opened up, which is we have citizens who are being held hostage by the Chinese uh, government and, and the legal and penal system. It's quite all right for those of us who do not have responsibility. There's a division of labor here. The government of the day in any country, certainly in ours, has actual responsibility for what happens to the two Michaels and others. Remember, there's Fulon Gong people, uh, mm -hmm. adherents, who, uh, quite a number of them. And then there's the Uyghurs and so forth. But uh, we have, we, they have the responsibility, the government does. Our responsibility is to comment and analyze and make suggestions and recommendations. But if you have life and death responsibility over hostages being held in the Chinese legal and penal system, it perhaps conditions what you're able to do. Elliot, I want to thank you for your insight. Oh, you're very welcome, Ed, and this story is certainly one to uh, monitor. Elliot Tepper is a distinguished fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Economic diversity is key when it comes to stability. The U.S. is our largest trading partner, but really hasn't acted that way. Canada had been looking to China for increased trade, and whether that'll happen is yet to be seen. Margaret McQuaig Johnson's with the Asia Pacific Foundation and the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and she joins us now. And Margaret, you spent 40 years working in Canada-China relations. How would you characterize the evolution of it? 
Well, you know, it started right after the Cultural Revolution. China started opening up to uh, Western companies and being more open in uh, talking to Western governments and uh, became a much more modern society over the years. But when Xi Jinping came into office in 2012, um, things started to change fairly quickly and China became much more aggressive in its international relations and became uh, really more insular as a surveillance society and, uh, and clamping down on human rights. We had all hoped that as China was opening up, it would open up not just to economic reform, but also to political reform. And that really hasn't happened. And in fact, um, what little political reform there had been with very local village elections and things like that uh, is all out the window now. And we see clampdowns in Hong Kong and threats made against Taiwan. And it's really quite discouraging for those of us who have worked closely to help China build its capacity over the years. Now, you considered yourself a friend of China, but no more. Why is that? Well, yes, I was a friend of China. In fact, uh, from 2014 to 16, I was the vice president of the Canada-China Friendship Society here in uh, Ottawa. Um, but uh, it, I was in China in December of 2018 when Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were kidnapped. And I was talking to a Chinese national there about, about the, the detentions and he told me that China has a list of 100 Canadians that they can pick up and interrogate at any time. And I learned when I got back to Ottawa, about, uh, again, about this list from completely independent sources. <laughs> so I started thinking, this is no way to treat your friends. And uh, we had also seen developments like the militarization of the South China Sea and a new system of surveillance of Chinese citizens through their WeChat called the social credit system, where they could be um, uh, fined and lose rights like to take a plane or a train uh, if they spoke uh, badly about Xi Jinping or the government. So there were a few things, a few other things that were concerning me, but really what galvanized my uh, action to speak out was the kidnapping of innocent Canadians. Now you bring up the two Michaels, and it seems our federal government isn't isn't responding harshly enough to the situation. Why do you feel that is? Well, I'm sure that they um, are looking at all their options, and uh, we don't know what specific threats China is making behind closed doors that has resulted in this uh, reticence of the. Uh, government to take stronger action. I spent 37 years in, in government, and I know that whatever information um, there is on an issue in the public domain, there's usually a lot more going on behind the scenes that the public doesn't know about. So they, they probably have their uh, reasons for this reluctance, but there's a mounting pressure on the part of Canadians for uh, the government to push back on China. We've seen that uh, not acting hasn't worked. We sure don't have our guys back. And in fact, um, they've put execution sentences on two more people. So that's four uh, Canadians who are 
in prisons in China awaiting execution. And all of this is thought to be connected to the Meng Wanzhou case. Every time the government or others raise the fact that we want our people back, the Chinese government or the embassy says, well, Canada has to look to its own mistakes and solve those things first and um, release Madame Meng. <laughs> so it's pretty right. clear mm -hmm. that they're ho holding our people hostage. You know, uh, you, you had suggested that uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, you want Canada to pull out of that. What would that do? Would it send a message? It, it would send a message that uh, Canada doesn't want to participate in um, in uh, China-backed platforms like that, uh, where China essentially controls uh, the, the activities of the organization. Um, there is a nuance in that, though, and that is that another thing that I've recommended is that we diversify away from China to other countries in the Indo-Pacific. And in fact, I've recommended that we put in place an Indo-Pacific strategy that would allow us to um, deepen and, and broaden our relations with other countries in the uh, Indo-Pacific. And that would allow us to uh, move our trade dependence on China, such as it is. It's only 3.9% of our exports. Um, in comparison to 78% mm. to, to the U.S. Um, but uh, to, to not be quite so dependent on China for our trade and also deepen our relations on uh, other aspects like um, security, cultural relations, population health, of course, which is important with the pandemic and other economic reasons. And so there is a possibility that the AIIB might be a platform for uh, uh, building our relations with uh, those other countries. So what I've suggested is a review of our, our membership in that to decide what to do about it. Margaret McQuaig Johnson joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. She's with the Asia Pacific Foundation and the China Institute at the University of Alberta as we discuss Canada and China's chilly relationship right now. And, and, I, and I'm wondering when we talk about you know, Canada not really get, being forceful and trying to get the two Michaels back and the other situations we're dealing with. How much Canadian money is actually invested in China? And is that part of the problem? Well, yes, it's billions, but it's it's in select areas. It's in resources um, because they are, are uh, you know, need a lot of our resources. And it's in a few uh, big companies like Bombardier. Bombardier makes $2 billion a year uh, from its joint ventures in China. So, um, of course, Bombardier's structure is changing now, so perhaps that will change in the longer term. Uh, so there is a lot of um, uh, economic um, relationship between Canada and, the, and China, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why the government hasn't moved faster. We know that Jean Chrétien and, and uh, the Demarais and other major um, um, figures in Canadian society have um, strong ties with Canada through boards of directors, uh, with, with China through boards of directors. And so they're putting a lot of pressure on uh, the government as well. And of course, they're um, liberals. It seems to be the liberals that have... 
uh, got these very deep economic relations with China. So that too is weighing into the government's decisions. But I think Canadians are looking for more action. And we have uh, said that we're considering with other countries uh, naming officials uh, uh, in connection uh, under our Magnitsky Act in con connection with what's been happening in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And I've said that we should, in the first instance, name those officials in China who are responsible for the kidnapping and incarceration of our people under the Magnitsky Act. And there you would freeze or seize their financial and real estate uh, holdings. Many officials in China have um, kind of hedged their bets on the future of their country by making investments in Canada. Can this relationship be saved? Well, China is a big country and will certainly be a force going forward in the future. Uh, so we will need to engage on um, on a, a number of fronts with, with China. For example, um, I've been working on the issue of China and the Arctic. And it's trying to um, insinuate itself into all kinds of uh, activities in the Arctic, even though it's not an Arctic nation, but it wants access to shipping through the Northwest Passage. It wants access to our natural resources there. And so we are engaging with China in the Arctic and deciding, you know, how, um, how um, closely to engage and where to draw the red lines. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for, for inviting me. Margaret McQuag Johnson is with the Asia Pacific Foundation and the China Institute at the University of Alberta. And that leads to our unpublished dot vote question. Should Canada scale back its trade and relationship with China? You can log on and vote right now and have your voice heard. I want to thank Elliot Tepper, Distinguished Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and Margaret McQuag Johnson with the Asia Pacific Foundation and the China Institute at the University of Alberta. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.